Western's classic tale, around the world in 80 days. Hello and welcome to Lost in Sci-Fi and Fantasy. I'm your host, Leo, and today we are talking about Around the World in 80 Days, written by Jules Verne in 1872. I am discussing the book, none of the film adaptations today, um, but I will probably get to those some point down the line, maybe. <laughs> maybe far off in the future, because overall, this this was my first Jules Verne book, and my overall impression is, boy, I hope they get better from here on. So for a project I'm working on, I have to read four Jules Verne books. Uh, the first one is Around the World in 80 Days. The second one is going to be uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Then a, a more obscure one, Off on a Comet. And then finally wrapping up with Journey to the Center of the Earth. These are for an art project that I'm doing uh, for charity down the line. Whether or not I get selected is, you know, a question for way down the line. But that's kind of the reason I'm reading these books. Uh, doing episodes on them. Uh, is just kind of an, an extra bonus reason to read them a little bit faster. Because then I, I get content out of it. <laughs> Anywho, so Around the World in 80 Days uh, comes with a little bit of a warning uh, beforehand, at least from me. It is very old-timey, as it was written in 1872. So expect not a lot of cultural sensitivity or cultural knowledge, because it was written in 1872 by a Frenchman writing about an Englishman. So, no. <laughs> it's, it's just a mess in regards to other peoples. It's not great. But that aside, you know, putting that aside for most of this, uh, it is an okay book. It is really short, at coming in at 170 pages in my version. Uh, that is unabridged. Though, how you can abridge it further than it is already short, I have no clue. Like, if you abridged it further, it would be a pamphlet. Like, jeez, this thing is... It's the shortest of the books I have set aside for my project. And, uh, yeah. I will say, though, that it does kind of feel like it drags a bit. But that's mostly down to the characters and... Like the kind of the overall plot, but we'll we'll get into that uh, now as we kind of go through the plot. So the story is about a gentleman named Phileas Fogg. Now, I always thought it was Phineas, but the way it's spelled in this book is Phileas. So, okay. So, in this, he wagers half of his fortune uh, with his card buddies because of an article that they read in a newspaper. He read in the newspaper that, oh, you know, they got got it down to where you could do the trip in 80 days. His friend says, nah, like, you know, there's a bunch of factors that would get in your way. So, like, 80 days is, you know, if everything goes perfectly. And Phileas says, no, they, they've accounted for that. They've accounted for any, like, wiggle room of errors and whatnot that may go on. So, you can do it in 80 days. And thus, the bet is made. He wagers half of his fortune against, I think it's 4,000 from each of them. And half of uh, Mr. Fogg's fortune is 
20,000 pounds. So he puts that up, writes a bank note for them or a check for them to cash in the event that he fails the challenge. He then sets off on his journey then and there. Um, rewinding it back a bit is the introduction of the character of Passepartout, who comes to Mr. Fogg looking for an extremely stable, reliable person. He's had people that he worked for that you know had all these wild fancies. They would go off on a whim, do these wild parties and whatnot. And he, he didn't like that. He wanted someone extremely regimented. And Mr. Fogg seemed to be that man. He had everything planned to a T. Literally, he had like a, a whole schedule of his day to where he would count the steps to the step to get where he was going. And he would follow that routine perfectly. But then immediately, they set off on this trip, <laughs> kind of throwing that out the window into... Why does he stay with him? But we'll move that along. It skips over to kind of giving some background information as to like what's happening in England at the time of this bet. Not, you know, the political situation or anything, but like how people are reacting to the bet. And the fact that it starts to take a sour turn when he is kind of assumed to be a bank robber who stole 50,000 pounds from a bank in the dumbest way. <laughs> Literally, according to this book, in the world of this book, they they are so open and okay and trustworthy that they just leave the bank vault open in broad daylight for anyone to just walk into whenever they want and so a gentleman did just that. He walked in, stole 50,000 pounds, and walked out. And <laughs> the description was just vague enough to perfectly match Mr. Fogg's description. Uh, so when he gets spotted by a detective fix uh, coming into India, he assumes that that is the man. He is the one who who stole the money. And he's using a trip around the world as an excuse to flee the police. But, of course, you know, he isn't. The book, I think, is trying to maybe throw you off into thinking that maybe he actually did do it. Because they so happen to make it to where his fortune is so specifically around the amount of money that was stolen and also they make it a big deal that they don't know how he got his fortune or what exactly he does just that he's part of the reform club and he he's a very you know punctual man then it, it kind of skips because they are set to set they're set to go to paris but it skips paris and they're we rejoin them on a train headed to Bombay, I believe. Then from there, they take a boat across to hit the mainland of India. Then they take a train across India so that they can 
catch a steamer to Japan, then take another steamer from Japan across the Pacific to America, take a train across America, and then finally take a steamer to London. That is their planned route. But they run into some trouble in India, because Fix is constantly trying to get a warrant for his arrest, uh, but not quite getting it when he needs it. So he comes up with schemes to try to slow them down and get them caught on, well, I guess technically at the time, English soil. Big heavy quotation marks around that, because they're in India at the time. One of his schemes is, basically, he just likes to feed off of Passepartout's um, tendency to do dumb stuff. So, in India, Passepartout, for some reason, decides to just pal about for a bit. I mean, sure, Mr. Fogg does send him out every so often to buy supplies and whatnot, and in this case, um, more clothes. Because they set out immediately with just a carpet bag of money. So they he walks into a temple that you are not supposed to wear shoes in. And he's accosted by, I think, the monks or the priests of the temple. Uh, and has his shoes ripped off of him. So he then starts walking about shoeless. And they that gives Fix the kind of justification to hold uh, Mr. Fogg and Passepartout in India as they go to their next location. But they're kind of waylaid on the way because the train that was supposed to have been finished uh, wasn't. They still had 50 miles to finish on the track, so they had to find transport to get from one part of the unfinished track to the other. So to solve this problem, Mr. Fogg purchases an elephant uh, and they are joined by a colonel that they met on the train. They start riding this elephant into the forest, or into the jungle, and come across a ritual taking place in which the wife of a husband can choose to go with their husband upon death, basically sacrificing themselves to stay with their husband. Although they learn through a very convenient way that this woman is not choosing to do it, she's being forced to do it. So they mount a rescue mission in which, after a couple of failed attempts, they just kind of, when the ceremony's about to begin, they just kind of grab her and run. Um, so they save her, and they find out well, India is not exactly the best place for her to be right now, so let's take her to her uncle in Hong Kong, who has a trading business there. Um, so they take her along, but in their next stop, they are waylaid by the police and sent to court to face trial for Passepartout entering a temple uh, with shoes. Mr. Fogg then decides to throw money at his problem, he pays his bail, and says, and the judge says, okay, you're free to go. If you want your money back, you're going to have to you know, serve the time, which is only like a week or two. I think it's a week for Mr. Fogg and two weeks for Passepartout. So if he wanted his money back, he'd have to go back to India to get the 2,000 pounds, I think it was, bail. So then they continue on their way, uh, thwarting Fix, and they're able to catch their steamer, to Hong Kong. 
uh, once in Hong Kong, Fog, Mr. Fogg goes to find out where this woman, whose name is Ada, uh, where her uncle is, or Auda. It's a, it's a name. He, he goes to try to find her uncle, and he finds out that uh, he's no longer in Hong Kong. He went to, like, Wales or something, somewhere in Europe. So he offers to let her continue with them on to Europe. And so she takes him up on that. They also find out that the steamer that they are to get on has been delayed. So it's under repair. They're going to have to, you know, find some means of just waiting. <laughs> They're going to have to wait until the next day. So, but Passepartout goes and finds out that the transport is actually leaving that night. So he goes to go tell his uh, employer, but Fix diverts him to a bar, because at this point they're kind of buddy-buddy. They're friends. They don't... Uh, Fix is hiding his intentions, and he's been following them around. He's been pretending to be a businessman. But he takes Passepartout into an opium house slash bar and gets him drunk. Reveals his intentions, tries to get him on his side, fails, so decides to drug him because they're in an opium den there is a there's a pipe just on the table for use uh, he hands it to passport two who drunkenly takes it and passes out but as we are to find out later he does vaguely remember that the ship's leaving that evening and is able to board it himself forgetting to tell his master forgetting to tell his employer so cut to uh, Mr. Fogg and Auda and Fix. He learns that the steamer left the evening before, you know, next day. He leaves at the. He learns that it left and he's not able to find Passport 2, but he is able to find a different means of transport that, well, it can't get them to Japan because they're going to Yokohama. It can't get them to Japan. It can try to get them to Singapore to get them on the ship that would be going to Japan and then from Japan to America. So they are able to do that, but they run into some storms, but the storms tend to be a bit more advantageous than detrimental to them. And they're able to get there just as the ship is leaving and they're able to waylay the ship to get on board to get to Japan. Meanwhile, Passepartout gets to Japan, uh, sobers up, realizes, oh, I kind of forgot them back in Hong Kong. Whoops. Um, and has to kind of bide his time. He, for some reason, keeps walking in and out of the town and then eventually decides that he's going to join a circus that has a, a bunch of problems with it. <laughs> but we'll get to that later. Uh, so he joins the circus and in the middle of the performance he recognizes Mr. Fogg is in the crowd so he just leaves mid-performance joins up with Mr. Fogg they get on the ship and they leave they head for America they reach America have a few minor altercations in Phil in San Francisco uh 
but they're able to get on the train and start their way across America. They do run into a few problems, like a bridge going out and them just kind of having to wildly coyote their way across. Basically, they get stopped and they're told that the bridge, that if they were to cross, they would only be a mile away from their next station. But it's, it's a bit wiggly. So, the plan was to leave the train there, go around until they met a fjord to where they could get across the river. They'd go around to get across the river, then they would make their way to town, but that would be 10 extra miles of walking that they would have to do. Um, then someone suggests, oh, we could probably do it. We just got to get a good run up on it. The entire time, Passport 2 is just like, but what about if we just walked across the bridge and then brought the train over? <laughs> Which I was sitting there just like, why don't you just walk across the bridge? Then you only have a mile to walk instead of <laughs> instead of doing 10 miles. The bridge might not support a train, but it could probably support the people. But they go for the Wiley Coyote method of just get a good run up on it. Or I guess technically this would be the Roadrunner method because it works. <laughs> They're able to get across and they end up overshooting the town by like a few miles. <laughs> because the train's going at 100 miles an hour and they just kind of skim over the bridge. <laughs> and the bridge collapses behind them. But they're going so fast that by the time they stopped, they were like a few miles outside of town. And I think they either continued on or they backed up to the town. I can't remember. After this, the next incident that they run into is uh, the train gets attacked by Native Americans. Um, Passepartout, in order to try to stop the train... It decouples the engine and the the uh, thing is able to come to a stop. He gets kidnapped, then rescued, and because the train left without them after you know the engine, <laughs> once the engineers woke up, they <laughs> backed the um, engine back up to the train and then loaded up and took off while Passepartout was being rescued. And um, so they decided to take sleds. Like, it, it, the image it ev evokes in my mind is those windsurfing people. You know, those big sails that connected to a surfboard, but make the surfboard a bit bigger. And that's essentially what they start just, like, booking it down the plains on. Well... <laughs> Which is a really cool image, but a bit meh. Then from there, they just miss the boat that would take them to Europe. But, through some clever negotiation, he's able to secure another boat. This boat, though, is not going where he wants it to. But he still offers the money 
to go there instead of um, where he, where he needed to go uh, in in Europe in England. So what he does is while en route, once they were a good distance out, uh, he sparks a, a bloodless mutiny on the ship, takes control, burns all of the coal trying to get to um, to England. And then once he runs out of coal because there wasn't enough coal to actually get to England, they had enough coal to get to where they were going. But not, you know, not to England. So he brings the captain on deck and offers to pay for the ship. He pays the cost of what he paid for the ship or what the ship was worth new. And then starts dismantling the ship and using it as fuel to get to England. They start running a little short on ship. Uh, <laughs> by the time they get to Ireland. So they decide to disembark there, catch a faster mode of transport to England. They get in, then Fix arrests him, then releases him when he realizes that, oh, it, it was the wrong guy. They got the real guy three days ago. Uh, he mopes around sad for a bit because he thinks that he lost. Uh, but it turns out that he was actually uh, 24 hours early. Um, he just didn't count the fact that he had gained a day. Or that he had lost a day. So he comes in at the last minute and victory. He marries the woman that had just joined them on their journey. And they live happily ever after, and he's rich again. <laughs> so, it's an it's a neat story. There is some things where you look at the movie adaptations and you're like, okay, I can kind of see why they judged it up a bit. Like, I I'd seen at least one version. I I saw the Stephen Coogan movie, and in that there's a hot air balloon and a flying machine, and he's an inventor. But in this, he is a very stoic man. Like, he is the poster child of being stoic. No matter what happens, he shows no emotion whatsoever. He always takes everything that comes at him and just nothing. He, he just stone-faced, takes it, moves on. There's only a few moments where, like, emotion kind of bubbles under the surface, but he doesn't actually, you know, show it. it that is when a man insults his honor, and he challenges him to a duel. Though, originally, he was trying to reschedule the duel for after the, um, the bet was over. So that he could he would come back in six months and then shoot him with a gun. <laughs> but instead they try to settle the duel right then and there, but oh, the train gets attacked. That kind of thing. Then at the very end he starts to show a bit of emotion when he's sad that he probably lost the, the challenge. Uh, he punches Fix in the face when he gets released. 
which is kind of funny. Um, then when he kind of proposes to Auda, he, you know, shows some emotion there, but he still, for the most part, stays the stoic man throughout. Uh, some of the problems with the book, besides the fact that he's a very stoic man, is it's very short and a lot happens within the span of literally two pages. They will start off on one page acquiring the ship, for example. And on the other page, they'll have reached Ireland. That, that's how kind of how fast it can happen sometimes. But it, it's a it's a relatively quick read. I stopped at some points because it it does get a little bit tiring to just have these things kind of wash over him or Passepartout just freaking out in a corner because a train's not going fast enough or a boat isn't going fast enough because he almost everyone else gets extremely invested except for Phileas Fogg. He just seems like he doesn't care. When asked, he says, oh, you know, it's very important. I need to get, you know, to this place. But he he just acts like he doesn't care too much, which can get a little bit annoying to read. Uh, a bit of a fair warning. When reading Jules Verne books, for some reason... They like to spoil the entire book on the back of the book. Uh, for example, the paragraph on the second paragraph on the Around the World in 80 Days book that I have says Fogg and Passepartout, his devoted manservant, avail themselves of virtually every known means of transportation on their wild race against time, all while a devious detective dogs their every step and introduces fresh obstacles. The resourceful fog faces each new trial with unshakable aplomb. Through a consistently through a constantly shifting background of exotic locales from the jungles of India, a Chinese opium den, a Japanese circus, to a full throttle train ride under attack by Sioux and a bloodless mutiny aboard a tramp steamer. That's literally, that's literally all of the main, like plot lines, kind of outlined on the back of the book. So, it, it, so be careful of reading the back of the book. The chapters are extremely short, so it's kind of a Dan Brown situation here, where this one hundred and seventy page book has thirty six chapters. <laughs> Kind of baffles the mind. The next book I'm going to read has 47 chapters, but it is 430 something pages, so it's a little bit more justified. Not much, but a little bit. Um, there's a running gag, I guess you could say, that is brought up a little bit in the beginning, not really mentioned too much throughout the middle, and then very lightly resolved at the end. 
the running through line of Passepartout's gas bill. So upon the rush of leaving their house, uh, Passepartout forgot to turn off his gas lantern in their house. And Mr. Fogg just kind of waves it off and says, it burns at your expense. And a few chapters later, when they're in India, he's kind of panicking because he's like, you know, the longer this runs, the more expensive it gets for me personally, because that gas bill is going to be insane. And then it's kind of dropped for a good while in the middle. And at the very end, it's resolved. It tells you how long it's been running, uh, which is, you know, a cute detail. But other than that, it it's kind of benign. And the way it's resolved overall is that the bill gets paid because Mr. Fogg decides to split the remaining money that he didn't spend on his journey. So he's, he has the 20000 pounds that he kept in the bank then he gets the 20,000 pounds from his friends because he won the bet and then he has a thousand pounds left over because he had taken 20,000 pounds with him on the journey to bribe and you know buy random shit because he buys an elephant gives it away buys a ship lets the guy keep the engine and the iron hull <laughs> And then a bounty of bribes to get things sped up a little bit here and there. But, so he decides to split uh, the remaining thousand pounds from the trip amongst Fix, who he doesn't hold a grudge against. Especially since he had already punched him in the face. Uh, and Passepartout. But for Passepartout, the gas bill was paid with a portion of his receivings it didn't tell us exactly how much it cost though i think it might have given you the the formula to do it because i think near the beginning of the book it tells you about how much it costs per hour it's either that or it brushes over it and then at the very end it gives you the total number of hours that it ran and he said that he looked at the bill and you know about fainted because <laughs> the bill had come in while they were gone so there's a lot of cute details but the the fact that at the very end he's lamenting the fact that he didn't tell Phileas about the fact that Fix was a detective for no reason like he, he just for some reason randomly decides yeah you know that vital information ah, I'll keep it from him for now like, at first, Passepartout thinks that Fix is sent by the Reform Club to slow down Phileas along his journey. But then Fix reveals to him that no, he's a detective and he thinks that uh, Phileas is a, a, a bank robber on the run. And then, you know, he drugs Passepartout and, you know, leaves him in an opium den. But when Passepartout catches up to his his boss, he doesn't warn him that, hey, Fix is, you know, a cop. Because at first it makes sense because he doesn't know that Fix is with them. 
he kind of stays hidden at first. But then <laughs> once Passepartout sees Fix on the ship, Passepartout beats the shit out of him, then decides not to tell his boss for no reason. And so he kind of rightfully blames himself for the potential loss at the end, because if he had told him about Fix, then he wouldn't have offered to bring Fix along on all these like little misadventures, and he might have made it on time. But the thing is, once they get to Japan, Fix kind of becomes pro, you know, Phileas Fogg, at least until they hit Europe, because he, his goal through India and into Hong Kong was to, as much as possible, slow him down until the warrant came in. But once they hit Japan, the warrant finally came in, but they were no longer on English soil. So his plan then became to rush them as fast as possible back to England to lock him down and arrest him on English soil. So that's why he becomes kind of pro, uh, pro around the world in 80 days. <laughs> but his, his reasoning kind of becomes silly. So his worry, all the way up until they hit Japan, is that he's going to try to disappear. Like once he is out of Hong Kong, there's nothing that he can, that Fix can do because... Phileas is just going to disappear in America or Japan, you know, one of these countries that the English don't have, you know, a grip on. But then he just kind of assumes that, okay, so maybe he is trying to do a circuit, but he's trying to use that as an excuse, like, like as a method to throw off the cop's scent. You know, he, he went around the world. He wasn't around or, you know, it's been so long that, They'll never suspect me. They'll have forgotten about the 50,000 pounds that were stolen from a bank. So that, that kind of justification doesn't kind of work terribly well. Some interesting things. The sled thing was kind of cool. I did kind of like the imagery of them dismantling the ship while still riding it. That was kind of fun. But the, other, the only other thing that was kind of interesting was the duel that doesn't happen <laughs> because everyone just kind of treats it as like, eh, because the, a guy insults Fogg's honor. And so they originally, like I said, Fogg was going to push it off six months so that, you know, he could finish the race and get back and do it, you know, at, at a more convenient time. But the guy says, six months why not 10 years you know you're if you leave now you're never gonna do the duel so it's now or never so he says fine at the next station we'll have some time we'll do there but the engineer comes out and says no we're, we're not stopping so yeah you're, you're gonna you, you you can't do it here sorry then they offer them the back carriage to do the duel and the everyone's just like so obliging to to this scenario you know they go to the back carriage 
and they're like hey, could you guys clear out these guys are gonna try to kill each other and they're like okay and they just leave <laughs> and just let them take the carriage to to do a duel and the carriage is like 50 feet long and there's like it they say oh it's like perfect for dueling they're getting ready and then the train's attacked and it just kind of gets washed away because the guy get the guy that challenged uh fog gets severely injured but he's like he'll survive but he uh fog gets comes out of the attack unscathed and perfectly fine so it's it's a bit of a mess there i, I kind of wish that they they did just duke it out and shoot each other it would have been funny uh it's hinted when phileas takes over the ship in the bloodless mutiny that he was once a sailor because of the way that he commands the ship. He commands, you know, he knows what to do and how to do it. So they just kind of started assuming that he was once a sailor. Because his background is literally a big old question mark. They don't know where he came from. He do, They don't know where he gets his money or anything. Because he doesn't do a job. He doesn't do much of anything. So people are just curious. But yeah, I, th I think overall... It's a fine book. I would not actively seek it out. I, like, personally, I'm not going to read it again. I, I, I'm not going to actively, you know, choose to reread it. Um, It kind of feels a bit like a school assignment book, probably because for some people, it is. It is a classic. If you have a love for classics and, you know, what you can get from them, then I say, you know, have a have a ball. It's fine. It's not the most exciting or you know fun book I've read. Like I've read John Carter of Mars, and that was pretty fun. I've read uh, I've read part of Tarzan. That's okay. <laughs> I've read Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. That's another short one. That you know it. it it feels like not a whole lot's happening, but it's a bit more interesting than the not a whole lot happening here. It tries to make it feel like it's a breakneck pace while not being a breakneck pace. And I think that's partially down to the fact that it was serialized. So each of these chapters was released in a magazine at the time. So it kind of makes sense that, you know, so much happens in such a small space. But in full book form, it kind of breaks down a bit. So I guess my recommendation is if you want to read it, but don't want to feel too bogged down by it, go for about a chapter a day. You'll It'll take you a long time to read it, about 36 days, but you might get a bit more out of it. Because you'll at the very least have some kind of break in between that way you'll be able to kind of forget some parts but mostly remember the important bits and you'll kind of get a similar ish experience as to what's going on another small weird thing in this specific copy that i have uh, there's a footnote in it just one footnote 
and it's from the translator of the book and they just pretty much say a weird quirk of london clocks and that's all the footnote says it's referring to a bit in the like last few pages of the book in which it is said that the clock chimes at 10 minutes to 9 and it just says at the bottom a quirk of london clocks i guess <laughs> i'm just like sure Okay, I'm used to footnotes like that in, you know, manga and whatnot, where there, there's like little explanations of, you know, what things are and whatnot. But it just appearing this threw me off, especially since it's the only footnote in the entire book. Just threw me for a loop. Anywho, I think that that's a good place to leave it. Once again... I recommend it only if you enjoy classic books. Um, it's relatively short, so it, it's kind of harmless, but I would kind of... I would probably recommend Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde more. It's... And that's only three chapters. <laughs> it, it... Yeah. I'll probably do Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as a, a future episode down the line. Other than that... That's it. Uh, please, if you want to email in, the email is in the description. It is lost in sci fi and fantasy at gmail.com. I would greatly appreciate uh, suggestions on topics, suggestions on uh, improvements to the, uh, to the podcast. I know that it's pretty much just me rambling for almost an hour, and hopefully, you guys enjoy that. <laughs> It's a, it's a bit awkward. But, yeah. Thank you. I'll talk to you guys later. Goodbye.